0: Don't you want to know if I loaded or unloaded these boxes?
1: I actually assumed that you made them. Hello, and welcome to The Arteries. We're a weekly podcast where we talk to creative people about how and why they do what they do. I'm your host, Noel Dupla. This week on the show, I'm sitting with Peter Slangster, who, up until recently, was the guy behind Dublin's famous Creamy Sonic Studios. Sadly, shortly after this interview, Creamy Sonic closed its doors for good after over a decade of providing a home for so many great Irish bands. We chatted, of course, about Creamy Sonic Studios, about touring America with the legendary Mike Got Spiked, and learning music from El Ron Hubbard. You're originally from America? Yeah. Whereabouts are you actually from? Just outside of Detroit. Okay. Sorry about
0: <laughs> Michael Moore. <laughs> Don't blame me. Sorry about Kid Rock. <laughs> yeah, I think when you're when you're meeting someone Irish, you yeah. just go, "Where are you from?" He's go, "Detroit, bitch." <laughs> yeah. and I go, "Yeah, really? What part?" If it's someone from Michigan, you go, "Oh, well, you know, in the suburbs, about forty-five minutes from." <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: quite nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's lovely in autumn when the leaves change. Yeah, it was actually. <laughs> now
0: I grew up. I I had cows and. Oh, open really? fields it was
1: rural enough yeah okay a lot of ice skating and uh how do you have brothers and sisters do you, yeah i have two brothers yeah uh, older younger younger both are they involved in, in music and arts at all or? not at all
0: What? what so are they? they've both played i think instruments in school and yeah. that sort of thing but never pursued it outside of you know Maybe picking the old horn up once a year, that kind of thing, <laughs> like marching band kind of the marching band, right. symphonic band, okay, and were your folks music a little, or, uh, my mom played the piano, okay, and uh forced us into piano lessons,
1: yeah, as a child, which I think has actually been a a big help I think the the vast majority of people I know who've had piano lessons when they were a kid they they have that point. Where they just hate the fucking piano and they give it up. And then 10 years later, they're like, God damn it. I wish I'd stuck with it.
0: Yeah, I think piano is great. I think there's a, a lot that you can learn from it because obviously you can play rhythm, you can play melody, you can sing while you're playing it, which is not something you can do as well with, say, a trumpet. But so, I mean, you can, you can basically, you can be all parts of the band yeah. at one time, you know, rhythm, not only bass lines, but it's percussive, you know, so but I think the way piano is taught, or at least the way it was taught to me, and I hate to say this because I, my teacher was amazing. It's the kind of person that would do anything for you. I remember she got me uh, the sheet music for Need You Tonight by In Excess, like when I was 14 and growing bored of the piano, you know, just to help me stay interested. And I mean, it's obviously, it's a guitarist, have bam, 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 da na 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 And you're trying to do that on piano going, Dung, dong, dong. You know, like it didn't sound anything like the song and I just was completely disenfranchised at that stage. But I think that the way your piano is taught is just through repetition. So it's you have the basic reading. This is, you know, C, good boys do fine always, etc. And then, once you learn which note is meant to be read by which position on the staff it's in, then you're given a piece of music and you just repeat it and repeat it until you can play it well. And then you're given a piece of music that's a little bit harder. Right. And it starts with Mary had a little lamb and then all the way through. What are the big ones for a pianist? Like the uh, entertainer, uh, Fur Elise is somewhere in the middle. The Beethoven. Light Sonata comes yeah. up a lot, yeah. <laughs> But I don't think you really delved into the theory behind it. You know, Obviously, when you're reading piano music, all the chord charts are, are there along with the music. And I would have been 17, 18 years old before I had any idea what those boxes with the letters in them meant. I think that if, if it would have been more taught from a theoretical uh, perspective, this is what happens next, but this is why it happens, and this is what's happening. It might be a bit more engaging and a bit more educational. So Sorry. so you're taught to read piano music and play the piano as well as possible, but it doesn't really branch out your education beyond that. Whereas if it was more theoretical or... or music theory not theoretical as in like here's a book about playing piano go read it then then it might be more engaging and, and it would help you in a situation where you're working with a vocalist a guitarist or, you know at more instruments that sort of thing so yes from age for me from age whatever 10 till 16 15 it was all just repeat this do it again till you can do it proficiently When I was getting into audio engineering, there was a theory class as part of the recording education. And it was uh, (laughs) this theory class. I think the text was actually written by L. Ron Hubbard. And I'm pretty sure that most of the... I didn't realize at the time, but they were all Scientologists. So it wasn't necessarily the theory text, but it was the principle of education that the class was built on. It was, uh, it was called Study Basics. And it was, uh, you only know something when you can represent it in two dimensions. So you'd have to, you'd learn something, but then you'd have to draw like a two-dimensional version okay. of what you've learned, or you'd have to take some clay and like mold, like a little statue of what it was. So I had a little bit of theory. But in fairness, by the time I got to the recording school... I knew enough that I pretty much just took a test and placed it out of the theory class. So it wasn't, you know, depth. It, it was just the basics. Yeah. This is a treble clef, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: That's insane though. L. Ron Hubbard.
0: He, he wrote the, the theory behind the way they taught it. And it was amazing. Everyone passed with 100%. Because <laughs> like, if you didn't know it, you take a test and they go, all right, you got 10 right and five wrong, go learn them again. You'd learn them, and then you got to the point that, okay, now I know everything. All right, move on. So you never got left behind or you're never, you know, moved yep. forward and you were missing a piece from. Um, so, anyways, we're holding a, a meeting this Sunday. <laughs> if you'd like to come by. Um, so I got wind of this uh, recording institute of Detroit in East Point, Michigan. And at that point, I had, wouldn't even know what an engineer did, didn't want to know, didn't care. I wanted to play guitar, I wanted to be. Uh, Nikki Six or C.C. C. DeVille. It was just uh, coming into Soundgarden, Nirvana, coming out of White Snake and all that stuff. But, uh, So I just ended up enjoying it and only like not even halfway through the the school, I got offered an internship at a great studio in San Francisco. So I went out there and they offered me the job and I went back to the school and I said, listen, I really want to finish the education. I'm enjoying learning this stuff, but I've got this opportunity. And your man just said like here and stamped all the diplomas. He said, you're going to learn so much more working in a professional studio than you will here in a classroom and uh, go. So I we went, it was a residential studio, recording studio. So they had a six bedroom apartment where all the bands would stay. Yep. They come do an album for three or four weeks or whatever. And so I got to stay up there as well. So I was hanging out with all the bands and, you know, doing their dishes and yeah. <laughs> going to the store to buy them cigarettes. And I just thought it was the awesomest thing in the world. I basically treated like dirt. Sure. For Paying the, your dues. Yeah. About six or seven months. And uh, for some reason, I just thought it was awesome. Like, I didn't care. It would just, like, yep, yeah, this is the cost of it. It would just roll right off my back. And then, you know, Christmas would come and the studio would close down for four days. And the, I got uh collected. It was two-inch tape. So I just collected all the bits of tape that were cut off from the other sessions. And I had a huge reel full of it. And I had that, had I think, about six or seven minutes. And I just sat there and I taped them all together. And these are just, you know, sometimes two, three, four seconds. And so I just had this collection of the scraps of tape that I swept up off the floor and I made my own reel. And then I had access to this amazing studio for a weekend over Christmas and just went bananas. Um, Like I got a bunch of wine glasses and a bunch of bottles of wine in my tuner and I tuned the wine glasses to uh, different pitches for the song that I was working on. And then what I did is I recorded from top to bottom of the song each pitch. So I'd say say an A and it was four minute songs. I just sit there and swirl my finger and for four minutes and then whatever pitches were also required in the song so i'd had like six or seven different tracks and then i just played it with using the mute buttons on the mixing desk as my keyboard almost so whatever chord was playing i just have muted the ones that weren't appropriate for that chord and then i hit them all for the next chord change and just all the way through the song it was so much fun and just like creativity and exploring like and that's before you really have a good handle on like standard practices for recording then you're just like screw it you know what i mean here's some tape let's put some noise onto it and once we can do that then we'll see if we can make the noise better So when I was maybe fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, that kind of age, I was playing in the marching band in the high school. Trombone, heel toe, you know, feather big ostrich plume coming yeah. out of my, my hat and the whole nine yards, marching in formation, like making pictures of stuff out on the field. I was actually great. I mean, it was amazing, you know, to have a hundred people that were all kind of that in sync with each other. And then we'd march and do parades and, you know, have fun and that sort of um, so I always wanted to play guitar. Love the guitar. So I was talking to the band director who was uh, one of the best, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had in my life. His name was Nick Police, an Italian guy, about five foot two, big pot belly, black belt and karate, like <laughs> kill you without, you know, breaking a sweat. <laughs> and he could play any instrument in the world, you know, proficiently. One summer, And I was talking to him, he had, I didn't even realize at the time, it's like a 1950s Fender P bass. So like an instrument that you wouldn't believe. And he just gave it to me and he said, all right, here's the bass, not for keeps. (laughs) I saw the look on your face, you're like, what? (laughs) No, he gave it to me, lent it to me. And, uh, and he said, all right, here's the bass. And he gave me a chart, like, here's where, what place you push onto the fretboard to get what note. And here's the music for the jazz band. And it was summer, three months off school. He says, If you come back and you know how to play these three songs, you're the bass player for the jazz band. And that is all I did all summer long. And I just came back and, yeah, I just remember crushing it. Like, had to memorize straight through, just playing, no problem. So that's kind of how, how I started that. And then uh, it's playing the guitar, the bass. And then I ended up playing the bass in the marching band as well. So I had a band with a couple kids in school and. Would sit in on bass. People never had bass players. So if you could play bass, it'd be like, oh, we're doing the school talent show. Uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Stones. Bam, bam. da na alright I can do that. In fact, it's a gas, right? So yeah, I did that. And then when I moved to California, I just played bass the whole time I was there because it was classified, bass player wanted, bass player wanted, bass player wanted, you know. And I met a couple of really good singer-songwriters, really not uh, straightforward, typical, like great lyricists. I think one of them was a philosophy major. Okay. Ended up teaching and uh, wrote great songs about not being able to find a job. (laughs) When I moved here, I really wanted to get back onto guitar and really wanted to do more writing. So um, I put one band together here. And that did pretty well for a couple of years. Got that one song on the AIB commercial.
1: What was the band called?
0: It was called The World of Good. OK. And uh, and that song outlasted the band by about five years. Right. And, uh, and then I just kind of had to pull back from it for a while. And I'm um, just kind of back out playing again. Um, so no, when I when I met the, my partner and we decided to have a family, she's Irish. She was doing marketing and I think doing
1: some real estate as well. You guys got together and she was eager to get back to...
0: No, I just, we wanted to have a family and it just, I, for me, it made sense. Because you know when yourself when you're in bands... Like, for instance, right this very second, you're out late, playing, you're going to clubs, you're listening, you're rehearsing, and I just thought it would be better for her if she was closer to home where she had her family and her friends, so that way if I was doing work in music, that she would have more support it wouldn't be isolating it sounds like i'm trying to advocate my responsibility (laughs) (laughs) i just know that when you're working in music the hours can be long and late so i thought it made made sense to be here
1: okay so creamy sonic like from from the point that you arrived in dublin what was the timeline before you were involved with that immediately it was one of these things
0: where when i showed up to dublin one of the first things i started doing was playing with bands and nobody had their own space it was all rent by the hour so i thought all right here's a gap in the market so i think we moved to dublin in december 2002 and signed the lease in december 2003. And we're open in February or March 2004. It was weird because I didn't know Dublin geography at all. So I just left the house and started walking. I remember the day. It was just, you know, those days where the rain feels like ice needles just driving into your body and you're shivering and soaking wet. And I just walked like all down East Wall and then around and then across the river and then didn't know any, again irish geography and i just walked and i saw this building and i was like hey there's a basement that might suit and uh came home and i said yeah it's on dame court you know right by trinity college in the central bank and the mister goes yeah that's a good location <laughs> you'll be all right there yeah i was like okay cool for me the best part about the studio is just having so many young talented creative, motivated, energetic people that are all working towards a similar goal, you know what I mean? Who are really excited about what they're doing and really believe in what they're doing and really putting time and effort into making it as good as they can, and then promoting it and trying to get out, you know, as far as they can as well. So I love kind of just leeching the energy from all these people, like an emotional vampire. So keeps me alive. I'm being quite honest, I really haven't had that creative feeling in a long time. But when I was in my 20s, I'd come home from work and I would sit there with my guitar and I would play for hours and hours and hours and I couldn't get a note so I'd detune it and I'd relearn the song with one string tune differently and then I'd, you know, I'd just sit there and I'd explore and, and I'd write and I'd play and probably came up with some lots and lots of really, really mediocre things. You know what I mean? That is, you know, you, so then you play your mediocre thing and you develop it a little bit further. And then like three weeks later, you're still playing the same thing and you can finally play it through without missing a note. And then you change this and you hone it and you get it better. And, you know, and now it's like, all right, I want to write a song. I got 20 minutes. Um, okay. And it's gotta be awesome. So and it, it just, yeah, it's gone. And for me to get, Three hours to play guitar now is almost unheard of. And I was in uh, the room that you started in, the small room there. um, And it was just me and my guitar and everything I was playing. It was all songs I'd written and that I wanted to... to develop and everyone i was just playing it and i go if i was listening to this and not playing with it would be boring to me and i was just like and i can't make it better i can't create anything new or interesting and i remember um there's a book about writer's block you'd know the name if you heard it it's terribly boring book and it said like in a creative profession you have to set a routine and if you're sitting around waiting for inspiration it's probably not gonna come So what you have to do is say, okay, get up at nine in the morning and I'm going to play from nine till noon, then I'll have lunch, then I'll play from one to five. And if nothing's coming out, you still have to do it. So I remember saying to myself, all right, I'm still going to do it. So I'm playing this boring song over and over and over again. And then like, I just went like, oh, you know, actually, if I made this change here, and like, I didn't even realize that I had left writer's block. And I just went, oh, wait, and that can lead me into this. And then all of a sudden, it was like three hours later, and I would just been back in the zone again. I was like, oh, it's amazing feeling. And then I got done, and I was like, OK, I have the song now. So I think the first of March 2004 uh, Mike got spiked. Yeah. We're in the first band in one of the rooms. Um, they were an amazing band that ended up traveling all around the states and I was I did an album in Creamy Sonic and I took them on an ill-fated tour for this thing called the Warp Tour. So
1: who was on the, the warp tour with them.
0: Um, there was a band called Dillinger Escape Plan they played with I think it was one of the more notable ones. I remember Dillinger was one that they kind of buddied around with when they were there. So, But they ended up missing half the shows because they got denied American visas by Customs in Dublin. Uh, actually, they were all Canadian shows except for one. But we were flying into New York, and we we're going to drive into Canada and do the tour. They got denied visas. I was the only one on a blue passport. All the gear had been shipped to New York, so I had to get on the plane. They ended up getting flights to Canada flying in, and I think they made only one or two of the shows. All their gear was in New York, so they had to borrow like guitars and
1: distortion pedals. Why were they, why were they denied pedals. visas?
0: They, uh, they were just going on a tourist visa, because they weren't getting paid.
1: Oh, right. And okay.
0: then um, one of the guys, they said, Are you getting paid? And he goes, Oh, I don't know, or something like that. And so, like, what happens is you walk into the airport and you got your Mike Got Spike jumper on. Your man's on MikeGotsPike.com. And I said, Are you playing any shows in America? And they you go, No, know, they're all in Canada, but there was one booked in the States. So, just an innocent, you know, bass player or drummer, not really knowing what the agenda was. And they go, No, none of us are going. So there's me in New York with nine persons worth of luggage, <laughs> not to mention guitars, basses, cymbals, effects boards. And like, I had like four of those carts, you know, in the airport, like yeah. all strapped together with like belts and bits of shoelace. <laughs> and I'm just walking out. And the thing is, when you have nine people, the cheapest form of public transportation is, of course, a limo. So I'm coming out with all this crap, <laughs> haggard, right? <Knackered. laughs> and I get out and there's a sign, Mike got spiked. I'm like, that's me. Here's my bags. <laughs> I'm Mike. <laughs> here's, here's my bag. So your man pushed them all out, loaded up the limo with all the gear. Like, Where do you want to go? Like, oh, I don't know, New Jersey. So I ended up going to the post office and shipping everything to him.
1: They made it over for the...
0: I think they did one or two shows. I think there was five or six that were booked in total, and they only made one or two. But I think when you're Irish, you don't understand what driving in America is like. So you go, uh, you know, we're playing Cork, and then Kerry and then Donegal, and then Galway. And then we got a few shows tomorrow as well you know what i mean you can make the whole thing in a couple of like anywhere you tour in ireland you can sleep in your own bed whereas you know when you go over to the states they're like oh yeah we got one in tennessee then one in florida then we're coming back to washington then we got two in texas like okay good luck with that and you're on the road for you know 30 hours between gigs
1: were you doing live sound for them or
0: no i was just um i produced the album but i had gone in with a handful of people to fund it as well so we're trying to be the label and management and that okay. sort of thing so that's how we got involved with booking the shows okay. but my whole thing was producing in the studio uh-huh. Video I ever did was the promo that you guys were in, and I had written a piece of music for Aaron, the producer who produced that video. So I ended up writing the music for him, and it was a very small budget. So I'll do it, but you owe me a favor. So he produced that video in exchange for the song being written for the other video that he was producing. And so they got all the footage, and I just gathered up the footage and Edited all the videos. So, so that was the first. And obviously that was like ourselves, like Galaxy. House of Dolls. I real. remember you had kind of a peach look. The yeah. Galaxy was kind of blue. Noise Machine was kind of yellow. Hot Sprockets were kind of orange. And... uh everyone like everyone that that was one of the my favorite days of my life so far God, yeah
1: that was one day
0: yeah it was all one day so remember Shane and Kieran were doing the audio and they would take down and so we just, instead of moving the bands into the audio we moved the audio to the bands each one in their own room and uh two hours only so it so we had two engineers that would set up all the mics test everything do the recording and then three cameras would move in and then we'd shoot the song what four or five times and then uh the mics would go and then the interview when they'd set up the mics for the next band while you were being interviewed then the whole process would move over one room And I think we had about 40 people working on the thing that day. We had five bands. So, probably about 25 people. Everyone bright eyed, bushy tailed, like no one hung over, no one late. But you know what I mean? Like, I drilled it into everyone. I'm like, it's going to be a tight ship. And everyone was there on time, ready to go. And yeah, it was great. I remember just buzzing down to, uh, you know, Khan's camera um, because I needed a data card reader or something. And I was like and all these looky loos like looking at Nike tennis shoes and and I was like slaloming down the street in between all these people like a like a race car video game or something. Yeah. And I just remember like everyone looking at me like, why is this guy in such a hurry? And me thinking, You people are just wasting your lives. <laughs> I am doing something awesome right now. I just remember having that feeling the whole day, like everything had just had to go smoothly to make it work and then at the end of the day when i was kind of pacing while the data was being dumped and people were starting to have drinks or whatnot and i said just sit down i said once i sit down i'm not getting back up because it was you know one of those 16 hour days and fine sat down just done yeah it turned out great it was a lot of fun and and uh so that is kind of what gave me the idea and i i've had that live rig for ages so I was doing live recordings you know in venues or you know wherever on location but I thought those videos went so well that it just made sense to turn it into like a product I got to the point where I kind of felt like audio without video is sort of becoming obsolete what what are you gonna do
1: just sit there looking at nothing (laughs) (laughs) listen into music what I mean in terms of the videos it definitely felt like you were starting to you know to build your own style where like Uh, With anything, when you start out, you're just trying to make it work, like actually function. But uh, do you feel that you've started to get your own rhythm to it, get your own yeah like when
0: i first started out i would always have one static camera because i didn't trust myself so there would be one there just in case you know just put a static on the drummer through the whole thing so you've always got something to cut to and it was always the most boring angle you know so i do that and maybe the second shot i'd be filming the drummer so i put a static on the guitar and so like i've completely cut out any static angles and people say oh well just stick a gopro up here oh jeez like what are you gonna drink some red bull and jump off a mountain no you're not putting a GoPro in the corner. So it's now So I've like forced myself to get all the shots. But in fairness, you get done and you'll know if you don't have it. You know, you could take two passes and go, yeah, loads of amazing stuff in there. But you can also get done with it, the whole thing. Go, listen, lads, I think I'm going to get one more, you know, just, you know, just to be on the safe side. Let's get one more. There's that one important fill that you just didn't get the right angle on the drummer, that one note on the guitar solo that you just got to make sure you have the right angle on. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really feeling comfortable with it and really uh starting to enjoy like learning how to use the the different the functions of the camera like to get the proper depth that you want from the lens you are getting enough light in without it being too blurry it's like audio if you want more bass then you hear less kick drum i want more light so there's more noise or i want you know just learning the the, the gives and takes and sort of trying to find the right balance and i just think it's amazing That with a microphone and a camera and the internet, you could potentially reach the world. Now, in fairness, it's hard to get their attention. I mean, you can send it to your ma (laughs) in Michigan, or you know what I mean. You can. It's it's like I can just capture this moment of life, preserve it forever, and spread it far and wide. It's very empowering. Mm I did a short film for um, that same producer, Aaron, who did the video. So Aaron Mulally is his name, and he's got this story it's called the struggle of libations it's a story of the relationship of one man and his pint of guinness and he's actually like done several versions like the first one was just like a handy cam version with his friends that kind of thing and eventually he got a budget together hired a film crew off season out of game of thrones and they came down they f- hired a crane to shoot at grave diggers you know in uh, phippsboro uh, cavanaugh's pub hired a dublin bus to to shoot on and, and just like made it huge production i think the whole, the filming for the whole thing was about 3 or 4 days and cuz that was the biggest expense but everything you know the editing and uh, the grading the music it ended up taking like a year and a half to get the whole thing sure. together so he asked me to do the score for it so i ended up writing the whole thing just on sequencer and ideally i wanted to hire a band and just have them play it in one go like once we had all the tempos there i figured i could match a click to the video and and sort of conductor they could follow follow along, but it didn't work out. But what I ended up doing is is uh, just hiring a few musicians. So I was able to get the principal violin player from the RT orchestra and had her play the entire orchestra. So she did um, you Know, say it's a three part harmony, you have the lower note have her play that three times so it would sound like three violinists, sure. the mid part, and then the top part three times. And we did um, the whole thing through we did uh, staccato, pixicato, tremolo, um, all you know, different styles through the whole thing. And after working with her for uh two hours, had something like 50 tracks a violin okay. and then just mix them down really low you know not really low but mix them really tight so it sounded like a whole section that we had a french horn player and had him do several things and then actually got the mute fish lads in to do percussion on this tribal sort of bit that goes a bit mental in the in the, in the soundtrack so so they came in and just beating bongos and you know kit and rolls and then all sorts of different things and uh just put this group of amazing musicians together. The whole thing
1: done. They're scarily talented guys.
0: Yeah, no, no, it was great. It was weird working with the professionals. I'll tell you this. Um, the professionals versus the amateurs. The professionals, because I ended up scoring the whole thing and then printing out the scores so that the professionals would have music. They could just read it, get one, maybe every tenth time they'd need two takes for something. And then at the end I just had a very simple progression like a whole chord kind of open chord rock kind of slow doo, 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 you know pace and i just said to everyone like listen here's your part but then also why don't you take the thing because it was uh, the outro but then it bled into the credits so i just needed it to go for like you know forever mm-hmm. so that it this the movie could just end as the credits were done and i said to all the professionals like just improvise anything you want over the top and every single one of them i don't improvise like what do you mean you don't improvise like they don't write music. And then all the amateurs that I had in say anything you want, just improvise over the top. Like, Yes, I'm free. And just, you know, go crazy with it. So it was interesting to see the, the dynamic, you know, between like the people who, who are like studied and, you know, you give them a piece of music, they'll knock it out in a second. They'll read it off the page and they'll do it perfectly. And then the people who would look at a piece of music and, like I have no idea what those markings mean. Could yeah. you play it for me half a dozen times, and okay. I'll come up with something, you know? And I'll get there, and uh, and then those people, you go, yeah, just freeform improvise, imp- imp- improvise something. They go, yeah, cool. I'm there. I got it. I know right. what I'm doing.
1: so much to peter slangster for chatting with me today you can find links to all his music and online presence at our website thearteries.org. all of the music for today's show is provided by peter slangster and his bands jericho mile and the world of good if you enjoyed the show share it around tell your friends spread the good word the show was produced and edited by david canton and presented by me Noel dupla thank you for listening this has been the arteries